welcome everybody to the Hamilton Institute seminar program. It's a privilege today to have with us uh, Dr. Ruda Kulhavi from IBM Global. I've known, had the privilege of knowing Ruda for many, many years, since before 1985, I think, when you were elected a fellow of the Royal, of the um, Czech Academy of Science, and then subsequently, I think, 96, went to Honeywell, where he worked for many years in process industries, applying mathematical ideas of control and estimation to the kind of plant that company had. And then in 2002, I think you went to IBM Global to apply the same kind of methodologies, mathematical modeling, uh, emphasis on Bayesian analysis to business models and business systems. Bayesian because the Prague School of Bayesian estimation is, is famous in control engineering and uh, Ruda Kulhavi is a product of, of that school and a, now a strong, strong uh, disciple and follower and promulgator of it. So it's a great pleasure to, to welcome Ruda, where he's going to talk today about his work on networks as applies to business studies and business systems. Ruda. Thank you, Peter. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, thanks for the, for the invitation to spend some time, a few days uh, in, in Maynooth. Um, Peter already mentioned that I started in, in, in uh, manufacturing. Even in the academic years, I, I did some applications in the manufacturing world, and I, I had the privilege to work for some of the largest uh, companies, best brands, uh, both as an employee and as a, as a project person. And suddenly, after 10, 10 years of my life in, in corporate world, uh, I somehow felt less uh, challenged by the manufacturing world. And I felt that uh, I'm, I'm going to refinery companies that are beautifully managed by modern technology and what we can add is relatively little. Please take it as my subjective personal, personal viewpoint, which may be offending to those people uh, still digging in these fields. But I felt, wow, if there is any single area where control and systems uh, theory might help, it's, it's the area of business, it's the area of uh, business systems, because with all due credit, all due respect to those companies, uh, uh, diplomatically speaking, we could do better. And this is sort of a, a side product of my work, both practical and theoretical, uh, in the field of uh, business systems. I do realize that uh, your background, uh, your interest may be rather different from the topic of today's talk. So I will try mostly to stay at a relatively high level, only the second part is a little bit more technical. Uh, so I will start with introducing the concept which is known in the strategic management literature as value networks. And then I will in the second part speak uh, a little bit about mathematical modeling of these value networks, which might be seen as part of the market with specific features. Uh, then we will talk about, speaking of value networks, the primary question is what value means. So I will speak uh, about uh, quantification of value, which is exchanged between the actors or parties in the market. And I conclude with some uh, some hints as to other possible applications of value networks outside business because I believe it's, it's, a, it's a very general concept which might be eventually of interest to you as well. So let me start with uh, the introduction of value networks. Um, if you look to the history of business, the beginning of 20th century, end of 19th century, much of what is, uh, what is perceived as the, as the top 
of, of business development was the concept of a higher of a vertically integrated hierarchically structured uh, company uh, what we see the last say two decades is splitting those vertically uh, integrated companies into loosely coupled uh, decentralized uh, and distributed uh, uh, networks of uh, standalone business entities, standalone firms or standalone business actors. A uh, good example is uh, the Fort River Rouge plant, uh, which is a kind of archetypical example of, of a vertically integrated company. Uh, at its peak, about 100,000 people worked at a single plant south of, uh, south of Detroit and the company was, uh, the plant was integrated to the level that they had nearly everything, including their own production of glass, their own production uh, of, uh, of plastic out of soybeans. Uh, they had their own police department, multi-station fire department, a huge crew of maintenance, tire making plant, everything. Now, if you compare it with the today's world, the level of specialization, the division of labor and cooperation in the industry is totally different picture. So uh, for the new Audi A3 as just single example, 350 suppliers are participating in building this car and automotive as you, you probably know is one of very typical example of uh, continued division of labor. So uh, the figures are like 20% of car like this is produced by Audi, 80% is produced by others. And uh, it goes to the point that companies uh, that carry the brand takes care basically only about the brand, about the design, about the marketing and aftermarket services. Everything else is done by others. So we, we face completely different situation and we, we see something we may call value network. So let me spend a few, few seconds on the anatomy of a value network. Uh, we have, let's start with a producer of consumer's goods. I mean the last stage in the production. So we have a one producer and number of consumers. Think of these like segments, not single companies, but like segments with specific features and properties. Uh, typically you have a bunch of other producers producing so-called goods of high order. Good is economic term, which means anything that serves the need of your, your customer. Uh, normally you need a lot of labor to buy from the market because no, no, no company these days owns the people. You must buy the services of the people on the labor market. Uh, you need some raw materials from the nature or as economists call it land. And typically you, you use these days a lot of investors. So you have a lot of buddies essentially lending you money under different conditions. So eventually you see quite large network of standalone business entities that work together because they provide to each other something of value. Uh, this situation is, is a source of many different tasks. One typical task is that you consider a focal company and you are interested in how you build up your value network around you. Uh, the other picture is the picture of network orchestration. There is famous example, Chinese company Li Fung in Hong Kong that 
has no other, no other value than 40,000 suppliers, and they have perfect knowledge how to use these suppliers, and their added value is orchestration of the network of suppliers. They don't produce anything, and yet it's, it's one of the number ones in apparel industry. Now, you, you don't see the company because that's behind. The value of the company is really perfect knowledge of the network. Sourcing, all companies now improve the level of procurement to the point that they can very smartly squeeze the suppliers with the best price, best conditions. The same applies to the other part. So companies are spending lots of money on better understanding the market they, they serve. They provide products and services too. So we have lots of different tasks that share essentially one single approach, which is understanding of the dynamic behavior of a, of a network like this. And as you will see at the very end, I believe that these networks are typical now for, for many other parts like social networks, like, like biology, like uh, non-profit organizations. So it's not just business, but I will concentrate today on the business picture. Uh, now let me move to a little bit of technical description of value networks. I don't know how many of you have background in economics. Um, I came to economics rather late, so for me it was like a discovery. Uh, and kind of surprising because the methodology of economics is very much different, say, from mathematical modeling, you know, not to say systems and control theory. So most of the time I, I was really troubled by why economists approach particle problems the way they do. Uh, this is perhaps the most famous mathematical model in economics called Valrassian, uh, according to French, uh, French economist Leon Valras. And the idea is, whatever is in the market, put it into long vector, so-called commodity vector. Each entry is one commodity, and the commodity is not, uh, is not made specific only by the physical description of the commodity, but also by time and place. So you have long vector that describes essentially market from now to the future for all sorts of commodities you can think of. Uh, you have this vector, which is about quantities per node, per single firm, and you have the complementary vector of prices, which is typically, at, the, at least at the very beginning, supposed to be given. And the beauty of this model is that you take the inner product of quantity and price and get the profit of the producer. So if you have thousands and thousands of producers uh, in the market, you can describe the state by those long vectors of resources, commodities they, they own. And with the complementary prices, you have perfect information about what sort of profit these companies are going to make over time. Because again, keep in mind that these entries are taken with time and also with place. So make your chips as a, as a very simple example. You buy some potatoes, frying oil, you need a bit of heat and labor, you make chips. There is a smart convention in Varasin model that those uh, inputs, factors of production are taken with minus uh, sign and the products are taken with plus sign. That's why you get profit out of this inner product operation. Now the problem with the Varasin model, well problem it's, it's one of the most beautiful models, in my understanding, in, uh, in uh, human history. Uh, there is a thin book written by Gérard Debré, 
uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, among others. Uh, it's only about 70 pages long, and I would recommend to any PhD, PhD student, it's, it's the most beautifully written description of, of a model which, which is reading like, uh, like a novel. Uh, so it's certainly a great achievement in trying to capture the complexity of the market, but uh, the constraint is it's very much static model. It essentially tells you something only about the equilibrium point, and it's very much node-centric model. So essentially what you do, you calculate balances over individual nodes. What I'm interested in is really a dynamic model, a model that will be more exchange-centric, to try to understand the market behavior, try to understand the fundamental question, uh, I mean, in the American way, what makes two actors do business together? So what is the reason why two parties get together and exchange something on, of value? And you feel that behind this exchange must be some individual validation by both actors of what I exchange. So what I have and what I give up and send to the other party on my value uh, scale must be lower than what I get and the same applies to the, to the other party. Only when you have this reverse valuation the exchange happens. Um, there are several concepts I would, I would uh, like to spend a few minutes uh, over. I mentioned already actors. I use the more generic term actors because it covers both firms and consumers but also in modern market regulators, uh, banks, insurance companies, financial services companies, lots of uh, different players. So I speak here about actors. It's also related to um, the Austrian school of economic thought, uh, where one of the fundamental, question, fundamental books by, by Ludwig von Mises is called Human Action. And this is to me something like my beloved Bayesian theory on the decision theory side. So I use actor as essentially extension, this human action perspective. Each actor has a set of resources it, it owns or has access to. And this is a very natural perspective for any manager uh, because the managers think basically in two uh, complementary variables in stocks what I own and in flows what I what I got this quarter this year and what I what I've given up so exchanges here and my property loosely speaking in, in balance sheet the complementary concept is the concept of uh, value value exchange uh, I refer here to the book by the American economist uh, Maria Rothbard, which is um, to me a very readable book uh, about economics. That was my, I tried from different sides, so if, if someone has background like me, I recommend to start with this book because when I wrote, when I, when I read the first two, three pages, it sounded like decision theory. It's not economics, it's decision theory. Very clear, very clearly defined concepts. Uh, so it's a, it's a very natural start into modeling of this type of systems. And the primary idea is that any action it involves some sort of exchange. So it doesn't need to be just, uh, just a market transaction. Any human action 
basically involves the decision to uh, exchange one state of affairs I have now for the future which is presumably better so any decision like to go to, to, to the university to buy a house to, to, to change your job it's about it's about the exchange and the exchange basically involves anticipation of what's going to happen as a result of the exchange and anticipation means uncertainty so uh, naturally time and uncertainty brings into the picture uh, with uh, this sort of approach to human decision-making. A few uh, formalized pictures of the same concepts. I essentially take uh, the Varasian concept of a long vector of resources of the same common structure for all the actors. So basically it means many of the entries will be zero. Uh, the M actors indexed by I and I take the dynamic picture so I really do not model the whole vector across the time horizon but I, I think of propagating the probability of uh, uh, the resource vector over time. Uh, the complementary concept is the concept of exchange and I take this description, the U, and it has good reasons, it's like parallel with control theory, because from the actor's point of view, this is external input. And you, you learn the value only in the market, so outside of the actors. So just for, for those of you with, with background in control theory. Uh, the exchange actually contains two types of variables. One is the structure, which exchanges are active at the time instant k and for those that are active what are the actual flows that the two actors exchange between each other so think of this picture you have long vectors of resources between two actors exchange basically means I subtract some value from this particular resource and I add it up with the with the counterparty and I do the same for, for the good which is exchanged the other direction. Actually, it doesn't need to be the other direction. Think of waste. You have waste, you get rid of waste, and you pay for getting uh, rid of, of waste. But conceptually, we are speaking about changing the resource vectors, essentially, by subtracting some quantities of resources for one actor and adding them up uh, for, the, for the other actor. It's just pure convention here. Uh, here I comes to my, uh, to my Bayesian picture, so I, I, I would like to come up with a model that uh, captures the dynamics, the dynamic behavior of both resource development over time, represented by those X, and the actual exchanges that happen uh, periodically uh, at, uh, at regular time instance. That's, that's essentially the assumption of the model. Uh, I'm not sure how much I can dig here into details, just basically I'm, what I'm doing, I'm factorizing this joint density, probability density function of all the resources and all the uh, uh, flows of resources over some period of time and I factorize it using essentially Markovian, Markovian assumption about the conditional independency of those, of those variables. So, I, I found a much better explanation using this picture. Uh, you start from 
state of your value network, part of the market at time one, and with the exchange at time one, the initial one. Then you calculate what will be the resource vector at time two, based on what you know about the resources at the previous time instant plus the exchange. And then the exchange is calculated based on the knowledge of the new state uh, of the resources, or if you will, information about the levels of resource stocks, plus you may penalize changes in the, in the exchanges by taking dependence on the previous exchange state, which is very natural. Think of daily update of a market model then it's very unlikely that you would suddenly change the exchange from day to day. I mean, normally you sign a contract which lasts for a period of time. So uh, what you get as a result of this is a very simple, conceptually very simple simulation scheme. You start with the initial levels of resource stocks, say for two parties only, for two actors for simplicity. You calculate what will be the levels of resource stocks next time using this conditional uh, density. Once you know the levels of resource stocks at the next time, you can start modeling what are the most likely exchanges of resources between the actors in the market using this conditional probability. Then with information about the current level of resource stocks and the information about uh, the actual, actual flows, resource flows in the, or market flows, you can calculate the next levels of resource stocks at the next time instant, next exchange, etc. It moves like this. So you really alternate two steps. You alternate resource stocks update with the network flows calculation, which is sort of very natural actually. It's, it's how, how the real business is done in the companies. Uh, but there are stronger mathematical reasons for why to approach the problem this way. So we have basically two problems from the mathematical modeling uh, point of view. How to construct this conditional density and how to construct uh, the, uh, the network flows conditional probability density function. Uh, for the first one, it's easier one because we have already actually celebrated uh, 50 years of system dynamics at MIT Sloan Schools of Management, uh, I guess last year, actually two years ago. So Professor Jay Forrester brought from the laboratory of servo mechanism to the Sloan School of Management, typical MBA school, uh, the control and system theory, and developed a very appealing methodology how to calculate uh, the, uh, how to calculate the levels of resource stocks over time in business, economic, social systems. So I refer to this work. I, I don't go into, into detail. It will be for kind of tutorial for, for longer time. So I refer to the names Jay Forrester. The current Bible of uh, system dynamics is 2,000 pages long, uh, thick book, uh, Business Dynamics by John Sturman from MIT Sloan School of Management as well. I really like the book by Kim Warren. Kim Warren is a lecturer at the London uh, uh, business school and he wrote a book about how to apply this approach for modeling uh, strategic decisions inside the company and my little contribution is that I in one paper uh, basically generalized the system dynamics to the to the 
picture where you describe the transition via probability, so basically Bayesian view of, of system dynamics, which I needed as a, as a building component for what I'm describing here. Uh, the calculation of network flows is much more involved, much more tricky problem, and uh, uh, the construction I'm using uh, follows uh, this way. Uh, I first model the structure of the network and essentially penalizing changes in the active transactions, active market, market transactions. As I mentioned already, it's very unusual over a short period of time to change the structure of the network. So there must be something like counterpart of inertia in economics as well, and this is called transaction cost. Again, it's, a, it's an old topic, uh, old concept uh, due to a Ronald Coase uh, from 30s, and he waited 30 years uh, to get Nobel Prize for, for, for this work. And there is now piece uh, part of economics called transaction cost economics, which describes this term in, in much detail. And then I model the actual network flows uh, using this probability with this structure, which essentially takes um, two terms. This one is perhaps easier. Again, I'm penalized for changes in the actual network flows for the same reason like here. So if you have contractual uh, transaction, it takes usually some time before uh, the exchange finishes. That's it. So it's, it's the cost of changing network flows. What is really interesting and what is really intriguing and challenging is uh, this part, which essentially quantifies the benefits of both actors from the exchange. And this is the fundamental part, which uh, basically means quantification of what is value. And when I first, three years ago, I, I, I came to this problem, I said, well, it will be some combination of you know, system dynamics and a little bit of pattern theory, etc. So li like playing with the concepts. And it was just my ignorance because, I mean, this is the concept which for 200 years at least raises the interest of economists and I don't know about any single work that would be successfully really answered this. this. So I'm, I'm much more humble these days. Uh, and anyway, I'm trying to find out which concept in the economics coupled with the mathematical modeling would be the right one to capture the dynamics, the actual dynamics of value in the market. And uh, what, I'm, what I'm using is essentially this picture uh, where if you are lost in the, in the notation, please pay attention to sums. So there is some term which is summed up over all actors and the other term which is summed up over all active exchanges. And basically what we do here, first, I, I will start with the, with the second term. We quantify the gains from exchange and the gains are matter of individual market transactions. This is this term. And at the same time, we need somehow to account for infeasible exchanges. Imagine that uh, you are a company producing something and you have three very promising customers and you would like to serve them all. You, you may easily come to the capacity limit. Same thing, you have three suppliers and you see a wonderful uh, way how you might use uh, their services but simply 
you may have no use for, for the resources they are going to sell you. Um, or you may be in total shortage of, of the resources for the next production period. So you need something which essentially for each individual node calculates, essentially balance all the resources and pay attention to the capacity, capacity and uh, utility constraints on the node side. But again, this part is the appealing, interesting part because the other I mentioned here are you, you, can, you can imagine how to deal with this, you can come up with some uh, reasonable choices. What is really tricky is this part and for some of you who have uh, some knowledge about what's called Markov random fields or Markov networks, this is actually very closely related to the concept. So the point is you use distribution, probability distribution of a specific type which in this theory it's, it's known to be Gibbs distribution. Uh, it's, it's outside the scope of this talk, but just for those of you with, with background, uh, please note the connection. And uh, you calculate something like total energy out of local interaction energies. So you try to model the global pattern of behavior out of local interactions, and this is what is what sounds exciting to me, uh, really coming, coming up with something that doesn't take uh, into, into account or doesn't assume anything like auctioner, which is topic significant in, in Varasian model of economics, uh, and something that fits the picture I mentioned at the very beginning. Suppose you are a focal company, you have absolutely no control over the network, over the market, and you try to optimize your position, your added value, over, over your node, over your part of the network. So it, it's very natural to start from local interaction and proceed up to the uh, probability of the entire configuration. Uh, very quickly, more for those of you who have background, this is very closely related to the concept of Ising model in statistical mechanics. Uh, you may remember that uh, Ising studied some ferromagnetic material. Essentially, you have a number of elements uh, who may take one of two states, and you model the regular configurations essentially by, uh, by taking the local interaction energies. So suppose you model that uh, all, those, all those elements should take most likely the same state, those that, that are neighboring. Uh, you get a picture like this, total energy composed out of local energies that you can calculate over two boundary uh, elements. And again, the same picture, trying to generate global behavior out of local interactions. Very much the same picture applies to some pieces of modern image processing which takes uh, the, mar the Markov random fields for smoothing, uh, denoising and uh, estimation of pictures out of available data. Essentially taking again local, local interaction energies and here interaction means you have two pixels with two intensities and you say that the energy is low when the two intensities are very similar in, in size. So essentially you model your image as patches of areas of the same intensity. That's what it tells you. Now, 
my motivation is, okay, if, if you go back to Ising model, okay, suppose you have a value chain in economics, you have one company adding value to the other, and vice versa, the other company along the chain downstream, and you try to model the total configuration such a way that the probability of configuration is the more likely, the more value the individual actors exchange with each other, which is sort of very, very natural concept, but if you come down to the, uh, to the details of choosing the actual, the actual energies, it's again, it's, it's sort of challenging picture and it's a, it's a topic which is as long perhaps as the economics itself. So let me spend now without mathematics a uh, uh, few slides over, over this problem. Um, two concepts which are fundamental in economics is if you have two actors, one is buyer of a product or service, the other is seller. Uh, you have two functions associated with these two parties. One is the utility function of the, of the buyer, the B, and the other one is uh, the cost of the seller. Basically it means, or it can be interpreted like uh, if you take the derivative of these functions, what's called marginal utility and marginal cost, you can interpret this as, as prices, and this is the minimum selling cost for the seller, and this is the maximum buying price uh, for, for the buyer. So this is the famous picture balancing supply and demand. And again, your question is, what makes two actors do business together? You have a buyer and you have a seller. So what is it that creates the attraction? And it's basically the difference between the utility. Now, uh, keep in mind that this is integration of these curves, these prices, so essentially it's the, it's the maximum value you might get out of a quantity Q, Q asterisk uh, on the buyer side, and this is the maximum uh, cost you may, uh, you may incur for, for the same amount. So what you are trying to do as two parties maximize essentially the spread. You try to maximize the profit out of the, out of the exchange. And that's sort of easy picture because you take the stationary point, the uh, necessary condition for uh, this maximum profit to happen is that the marginal utility equals to marginal cost at the optimum quantity. And in this derivative picture, it's about the same amount which has the corresponding optimum price. Now, there is a uh, two other properties associated with the optimum price because if you draw the optimum price, so you sell this amount of quantity for this price, you get this straight line, and you can see that for the optimum price, this straight line is parallel with the tangents of the utility function and cost function. So you get two nice results that at the optimum price, the optimum quantity maximizes also the bias surplus, and then the marginal utility equals to the optimum price, and of the optimum price also the uh, seller maximizes surplus with the optimum, optimum quantity. And again, the marginal cost equals to the price. So it's 
the picture which is which is well known well often these two pictures are not treated together I uh, find it very insightful to, to actually take both the integral and the derivative picture together and your question of course is now I would like to formulate essentially interaction energy in such a way that I, I put higher value on those configurations quantity and price that gives you more surplus for both parties and for each of the two parties for the buyer and seller now as I mentioned this is very old result in economics but the result concerns essentially this point there is very little known about what's what's outside I mean if you if you want to come up with the dynamic picture then you should define your your objective function for the whole space for all the combinations of quantities and, and prices and frankly to me it's it's very much open problem so uh, of course you can start trying different uh, definitions and try to try to uh, simulate the behavior but that's that's not a way uh, I believe that would uh, lead to something of uh, of uh, say lasting interest um, let me uh, give you some feel for how the value network actually works and suppose you have three actors three parties in the market the last one is consumer the other one is producer in economic terms it's producer of first order so the closest one to the consumer and this producer uses some factors of production in terminology of economics it's a producer of second order and you have some initial valuation so this is the utility of uh, the consumer product to the consumer this is the cost uh, of the consumer product to the producer to the to the seller uh, these are the prices this is the price that actually consumer pays to the producer and the same for for the good of uh, of second order now you can see this that there's a difference between the values here which is just discounting so I I'm not going to make the picture too much complex simply there is something like time time value of money here and now suppose that the uh, I mean you are buying new skis and you see in the market that uh, the value of the new skis the utility to the consumer uh, increased what does it mean as a result of this increase because the uh, price is searched for somewhere between the utility of the buyer and the cost of the seller the price goes up now if the price of the first order product goes up it means this information is signaled back to the uh, to the producer of second order and you see that the utility of second order good increased as well now as a result of this the price of the second order product goes up as a result of this uh, the utility of third order product goes up and the cost of the second order product goes up as well and eventually you will see through the increase of price of second order product that the cost of second order product goes up so it's like you you open the, the slot and you see some some sweep like this so uh, upstream the utility goes up the prices goes up but that means also that the cost of upstream products eventually goes up and the the slot is 
closing, but at a higher level. So uh, uh, what, uh, what it tells us is that there is very strong feedback mechanism here, and that's perhaps topic of mutual interest, uh, uh, that first, the utility of a good of the first order essentially means that uh, the higher the utility, the higher typically the price of the first order tend to be. The same applies for the utility and price of second order, the same applies for third order. Sounds like, okay, we are creating value without any limit. It's not true because only the utility of a good of the first order, the ultimate consumer good, the new skis, generates some profit from selling this good. But due to the price of a good of the second order going up, the cost is going up as well. And you see balancing feedback loop. And it works even further upstream. So sooner or later you will hear also that the factors of productions for your suppliers went up and you see a rather complex dynamic situation where you really see network type of behavior uh, which um, may be very interesting practically because these days the entrepreneurs are trying to take relatively short business windows uh, for, their, for their advantage. So from the systems and, theor and control theoretic point of view what is interesting here is uh, there is something like information feedback which is crucial for the uh, for the workings of, of a market and it means that any mathematical model of a value network or piece of market must extend the state of the network some, with some information about the cost of the factors of production and prices of finished goods because otherwise you can do this optimization in the market space. So it's not only the vectors of resources, but also you need to store in a Markovian way. You must propagate your information. What is the cost of your factors of production upstream? And what is the, uh, what is the price of finished goods? And these are essentially dynamically following the changes in the market. And it is through this information feedback that the whole concept uh, really works. Think of some practical examples. Banks. Banks typically take deposits from depositors. In this particular case, depositors provide service to the bank. Uh, sometimes it's confused. You know, you, you go to the bank and it sounds like the banks provide you with all, the, all sorts of services. It, it's not true for, for, for deposits. It's actually, if, if, you, if you have a flow of value from left to right, so depositors provide value to banks because banks can provide loans to investors. And the whole picture works because uh, the banks expect uh, higher return on, on these loans, higher interest rate than the interest rate they provide to depositors. So this spread is actually what makes banks make some money. Then there are owners, owners that uh, invest their equity, their money, and they expect some valuation, again, like dividends from, from uh, the corporation. And then there are all sorts of banking services. Now the bank really provides services. Uh, you value s services like uh, uh, electronic payments with some money. Uh, the bank has some cost associating with providing with these services. And the price establishes somewhere between the utility to the consumer and the cost to the provider. Uh, I'm coming back to the point about uncertainty and about time. 
uh, the uncertainty about the present value of future goods should be accounted for. I mean, this is kind of normative statement, you know. So responsible lenders should price the risk. What does it mean pricing the risk? If I know that there is very high likelihood that my, uh, my debtors, my borrowers, won't pay all the money back, I should reflect this in the cost, expected cost of providing this service. If I increase the cost, essentially it means that my marginal cost goes up and you see the result. Smaller quantity of loans provided at a higher price. Now you might say the same, the, the parallel picture or the counterpart to this is the view of borrowers. So we, we might say responsible borrowers account for the risk. And what does it mean? They should reduce the expected utility of the loan to them by the fact that they might get in trouble in a few years from now because they won't be able to pay back uh, and, you know, things like uh, the, the home foreclosures, all sort of bad things can happen to them. So again, if the utility goes down, then what is the result? The marginal utility goes down, the price goes down, and the quantity goes down. Essentially, the market is closing down. Now, the problem is that this is only a normative picture. The actual behavior, and remember, I, I, my, my ambition is to build a descriptive model of how the, how the market actually works, not the normative picture, but descriptive picture for, for the businesses, so to help the people orient in the market. And um, again, there is a part of economics called heterodox economics, Herbert Simon, another Nobel Prize winner, uh, talking about bounded rationality, uh, talking about the fact that the Firms and consumers are not perfect maximizers, but they, they are only satisfying. They do all sort of cheating in the market. And you should somehow take it into account. I believe this picture actually takes this into account because you might model the actual perception, not the actual net present value of the future cash flows as the economics theory tells you, but try to model the actual perception, both parties, and what is the consequences for the actual behavior of the actors in the market. Uh, final example, Clayton Christensen at Harvard University developed a theory of innovation which works like this. Over time, uh, this is the performance demanded, let's say, for PCs, notebooks, uh, mobile phones, uh, uh, big computers, uh, whatever you can imagine. The button line of Christensen's approach is the observation that technology typically provides performance over time more quickly, it grows more quickly than the demand for performance. So sooner or later, you as a supplier, you as a firm, you provide more features, more functionality that uh, the customer can afford, can, can handle. And this is the occasion when new technologies appear and Christensen calls this sustaining innovation. So suppose uh, you, are delivering, uh, you are delivering large computers to a high end of the market. What does it mean? Uh, basically, you must build up value network that is adapted to this particular business model. You are, you are 
pampering, you are spoiling your customers, you spent a fortune on marketing, on sales force, etc., only to make this high segment really happy. But at the same time, uh, and there are few good stories uh, reported by Christensen, like uh, it mentioned of PC and what PC meant for the whole market. At this stage, most likely there are people already digging somewhere in their garage with very simple technology which has the potential to grow this way and stealing essentially from you some new market. And the observation and what I'm, what, why I'm using this example, again, I believe this picture can be used essentially to explain that you have very little chance to serve, to serve these two segments with the same value network. You need to change the value network and essentially Christensen's recommendation is start a new company or start a daughter company or start new unit and uh, there is a good story like uh, IBM moved PC business to Florida from, from New York and that was the reason why at the very beginning uh, IBM really succeeded because it was totally independent business unit with their own processes, their own procurement, etc. So let me conclude. Uh, I mentioned uh, it's not just uh, business organizations. I believe very much the same applies for not-for-profit uh, organizations. It, uh, it helps to understand how social networks work. Think of LinkedIn. I, I very much believe that most people who are on LinkedIn they, they have very selfish reasons like uh, there might be other person who has better contacts than I have and I would like to benefit f f perhaps for better job or perhaps for, for new interesting projects. So it's again network. I'm trying to provide some value to the network and I hope that uh, two, three notes from my friends, there is someone who might help me in, in, uh, in my life. And the same with Facebook, which is much more about really, really social life. I asked a colleague of mine, Otto Ritter, who's the who's the associate director of Discovery Informatics in AstraZeneca uh, because I'm very ignorant about the field of, uh, field of uh, biology uh, and his immediate response was I see at least two examples of value networks uh, protein folding and dynamics of action molecular and cellular pathways so I have longer description of this if you are interested thinking this way uh, but I smartly put this into notes under, under this slide. Uh, final note here, uh, these examples enjoy more symmetric views of values. What I presented today was financial assessment of the value of both actors. So you see some asymmetric picture. I mean product services flowing one direction, money the other direction. Suppose two people in love providing value to each other, uh, it's very symmetric, it's, it's not really that you, you, you can't say who provides product or service to whom, at least I don't see it this way. Uh, last picture, uh, the pins, the probability interaction networks, I tried to just briefly describe today. It, it's, it's not a single model as, as you understand, it's more like framework for modeling loosely coupled distributed decentralized systems. That's what I find really challenging, appealing here. I mentioned already, I found, to my surprise, it's a very ambitious program, so yeah, my ignorance can be poor excuse for that. Uh, so um, 
part of selfish reasons for talks like this is that I'm really looking for all sorts of smart ideas, people who are much deeper in economics, have better education, etc. So I think uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful workbench for uh, this sort of network-based modeling, dynamic modeling, uh, whatever your motivation is, maybe purely research one. There are many open points. To me, right now I'm working mostly on the definition of the buyer's utility and a seller cost functions, and then definition of local interaction, interaction energy. But what I'd like you, uh, you keep as, a, as an impression from the whole talk is that uh, there is something deeper here about modeling the global patterns out of local interactions. I didn't have much time and I decided deliberately not to talk in technical details. One of the most strong, uh, strong sources of uh, uh, motivation and knowledge as well is the work by Ulf Grenander, a uh, professor at the Brown University, Rhode Island, who wrote a few books about uh, general patent theory as a theory of, uh, of uh, creating complex structures out of simple building elements called generators and modeling the probability of these complex structures essentially through local interaction energy. So essentially on a very general level, the probability of any particle configuration is exponential minus the sum of local interaction energies. And now think for yourself on your problem, what, what does it mean interaction energy? If you look to the book, that was two years ago, uh, uh, Grenander and Miller published a book on patent theory, which is very much on the biology side, but, but more on uh, image processing, who are interested in this uh, very interesting work about modeling the shape, modeling uh, deformable templates, uh, this sort of things. Um, and also uh, what they call computational anatomy, so the capability to model the tumors over time, for instance, uh, and do automatic pattern recognition over this. I mean, super, super work. I, I mean, my, my little contribution here is when I saw this, and I spent two years on image processing, so that was my source of uh, information about Grenander. I, I thought this would be a wonderful framework for modeling this sort of economic system. So what I'm trying to do now, essentially, I'm, I'm bringing the theory of Grenander patent theory, complemented by system dynamics and some pieces of economics, mostly Austrian economics, and doing some soup out of it, which might be eventually used for something helpful and practical, because as Peter explained for the last 15 years, I'm very much on the practical side. So I'm eventually really trying to come up with something that I can show to customers and what can help me in consulting, you know, the, the businesses, etc. So that concludes my talk. If you have any questions now or any time until Friday afternoon, I will be very happy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there any questions? something about um, the classical model being node-based and the new models being exchange-based. Mm -hmm. 
but it's not so clear to me what's the advantage that, the, that this exchange-based model, models provide over okay. traditional models. Uh, um, that's back to my last sentence. I'm really interested in practical, uh, practical advisory tool and what the, I mean, the, the, with some exaggeration, business people now keep telling, with some exceptions, it's not a problem to produce, it's not a problem to manufacture these days in this world. The problem is to find a customer, find an find a opportunity in the market and deliver something of value to this uh, to this market window and uh, that's not really about the Varasian model I believe so uh, for me uh, I'm, I'm trying to articulate essentially the practical current need of the businesses and the need is really more about understanding where the, where the demand is rather than how you manufacture to maximize your your profit, how you how you optimize. I mean, many companies are now speaking about you know being efficient and cost cutting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but that's just folklore. Eventually, they will survive only when they find the, the hotspots in the market where they can deliver some value. So one of the ideas I keep in mind is visualization scheme working on top of it. And if you imagine those steps how the value is propagated. So help visualize in the real life market, this is the hotspot where there is actual demand for this sort of products or services. This is the hotspot, this is becoming cold. So forget about this, move your resources to those hotspots, etc. So I don't see it in Varasin model. Varasin model is really about its existential result telling you that uh, if you will, the capitalism works. I mean, if things are okay, if the market is efficient, so you get optimum out of just selfish, selfish profit-maximizing behavior. That's okay, but that's not, I think, what varies today's managers. It's more about short-term opportunities and those, those uh, large gaps between the utility and cost and jump into this. And as you jump, because of this uh, feedback loop, you close the opportunity for yourself because other people are following you, etc. So that's why I feel currently the exchange part of the equation is more important than the, the resource. Thank you, Ruda. Any more questions? What's the justification for Mark? Because there's all sorts of long-term complicated uh, decision-making processes going, like political interference, change of regulation, which are coupled to you know, the interests of firms, to the interests of the utilities that you define. So surely there's, some, there's a sort of long-term dynamic evolving, not just the short-term, one-step dynamic, which is... Well, there are two pieces, if I understand your question well. One is uh, that uh, the system dynamics model must capture the internal policies, decision policies of the, of the companies. And if you go to uh, books like Forrester's or Sturman's, it's really about modeling the business policies more than the dynamics of resources themselves, because that may be very, very simple. Uh, if, you go, if you go to the book by Kim Warren, it's essentially uh, a balance sheet and profit and loss sheet translated into system dynamics, uh, which, which is cool, at least for people with our background. I'm not sure that managers find it that cool, but. Uh, that's easy part. The, the tricky part is uh, uh, model the internal policies 
and Kim Warren spent a lot of time on modeling the low-cost uh, uh, aircraft uh, carriers like Ryanair, for instance. He has uh, lots of data for Ryanair. Uh, and um, that's, that's not so much about the resources, uh, at least. I mean, the critical part is not the resources. The critical part is the, is the business model of the company that allocates from time to time resources in, the, in a certain specific way. So it's here. This part is, is here. Uh, whether you have some long-term uh, long feedbacks other than via market, I'm not sure. I, I would need perhaps some example of what, what you have in mind. I mean, there's some, uh, there's a tiny, tiny branch in economics dealing with uh, problems you can describe by Markovian models, but uh, I'm not sure this is that, that uh, practically important to, to pay attention. So I would need, if you have any specific example. Okay. So companies feel okay, okay. that, especially in the United States, there's lots of lobbying goes on, lots of money gets paid right, for the right, price with right. the objective of changing regulations, right? So okay. there's, a, there's a feedback okay. between okay. that process and process Ah, uh, good point, good point. Uh, that, that's another story. That's uh, the difference between predictive models and models for understanding. And this, this is not predictive model. It's not like SAS or SPSS. You, you bring your data and you forecast for the next year. I mean, the purpose of this model is not predict the next crisis. The, the purpose of this model is to understand the internal mechanisms to the point that you can design a system which is more robust, which is more stable. Uh, so Forrester wrote a beautiful passage saying that uh, there is a difference between a plain pilot and plain designer and that today's managers behave mostly as plain pilots and they should behave much more like plain designers. So design a system which is robust, efficient, and then essentially the, the, the system flies. But now, you know, lots of, lots of firefighting and cost cutting, all these sources more like, uh, like uh, flying the system. So all these long-term assumptions, it's like simulation uh, prerequisites, uh, and normally how you would work with this model, number of scenarios, including political situation, uh, the changes uh, in the world, the, uh, I don't know, discount uh, um, interest rates in the economy, etc. The, the, the price of, of the crude oil, uh, people keep telling me if you can predict the price of the crude oil, um, you will be very rich. Uh, good point, but I, I don't believe that models like this can, can, can help you really predict what happens uh, third quarter this year. So it's, it's about and I, I see similarity to what uh, you are doing here, trying to understand the internal mechanism and use this for benefit of either curing some of the troubles, avoiding them, or designing better systems. Regulator is one of the actors, for sure. So if you have pharmaceuticals, if you have financial services, regulators should be part of the picture. And regulator uh, provides service to you that uh, it makes you in the business and you pay, you pay essentially by spending costs like in financial services, you must run a number of accounting agendas just to be able to demonstrate to your regulator that uh, yes, I can deserve continuing my business. So it's here. I mean, regulation is not, is not I think, the problem. Regulatory capture, not regulation. What, what do you mean by capture, sorry? I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, we can pick up on some of these questions afterwards. I know there's a lot of few people in the audience want to talk to, uh, to, to Ruda about the topic of today's lecture, but we're coming to the end of a time slot, and so what I'm going to do is say that Ruda's going to be here for now 
next three days. Please take advantage of that and uh, go and see him. He'll be in Ken's office. Thank you very much. I think he would.